All right, we are going to look at Acts 6 and 7. And these are two chapters coming together here. But you know what, ladies? There's about something, there's something that is just getting ready to blow up. It's going to blow up. Because this 6 and 7 is the last time they're in Jerusalem here. Remember, now we're going to go. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, they're going to give you be your witnesses in Jerusalem. We're finishing up there and now in all Judea and Samaria. So we're going to next week be heading out to conquer the world with the gospel. And to get the momentum going to just make this, this fire, this wind and fire just explode, we have Stephen. We have Stephen in the gap between two great men of God, Peter and Paul. He's right up there with him. It's short-lived, but we're going to take a look on what goes on there with him. But before they blast out of there to the rest of the world here and leave Jerusalem, Satan is doing everything he can to squash them. He does not, not want any of this to go out of the confines of Jerusalem. He doesn't want the good news to be revealed to people. He hates people. He hates God. He hates the plan. He hates us. And so before they, they move on out, they've got some organizing to do, okay? And so many churches have used this as a way to get organization in the church. And when you have thousands of people, you really need to organize them, right? You have 10 people, you have to organize them. You've got five kids, you've got to organize them, right? You've got three kids. I mean, two you can handle, you know, but three you've got to have organization going on. So when you're having thousands of people that are coming to know the Lord and coming into the church, people are, their needs are going to be um, overlooked. So we're starting with verse chapter 6 here. Verse 1, and in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, I mean, we're into the thousands now, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the, in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists were, were well, let's start with the, the Hebrew Jews. The Hebrew Jews embraced the, the culture in Judea. The Hellenistic Jews embraced the Greek culture. The Hebrews were considered to be a holier than thou, because they do everything in Judea. And the Hellenists were more unspiritual compromisers. They were all followers of Christ, but the church was growing so rapidly, it was pulling in people from all areas. So we have some tension within the body of Christ. There's some tension there, okay? Was it an intentional oversight that these widows' needs were not being met? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but they were. Um, Lots of times in churches we get our feelings hurt, don't we? All the time. Satan loves to use unintentional wrongs to begin a conflict. If we can't pull anything out of this, we've got to pull this out. Turning the other cheek, looking the other way, asking questions. I'm constantly in my mind saying, no, Molly, let that go. Let that go. It's no big deal. Pray about that person. Let it go. It's a constant thing with me. Because I can easily slip right into that criticism and the woe is me. And they're out there, nah, 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 right? That old flesh nature comes up. So this was, was just ripe for potential, blown up the whole thing, dividing it. You know, when it's supposed to be united, Christ paid for unity amongst the believers. So Satan's behind this little thing with this complaint. 
And in verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, and he said he brought them all together. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among the seven men, among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the apostles were never supposed to do it all. Our pastors never are supposed to do it all. They are the head, of the, the shepherd to a flock of people, but there's never designed to hang on to one person and to revolve around just the apostles. So they needed to solve this problem here. The apostles did call everyone together. Everyone was called together. Probably at that time, it was all the men. Um, but they didn't, it wasn't because they had a superior attitude with this. They were consumed and called to preach and pray. That's a huge job. The amount of time that your pastors spend praying and preparing for the word and any other thing, you know, that's going to call them out, maybe visitations or, or meeting with people or whatever. But if they are there to clean the church, to do the janitor duties, if they're there to do child care downstairs or whatever, they can't do it all. They can't do it all. They can't lead music, right? So they've been called to do the prayer and the preaching of the word and, and, and teaching the people and, and growing them. So it wasn't an arrogant thing that they were saying. Um, I have a quote here from one of Donald Barnhouse's writings. A young man once asked Donald, Dr. Barnhouse, hey, I'd give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you. Dr. Barnhouse looked him straight in the eyes and he said, good, because that's exactly what it'll cost you. Okay? You have these people who really get into the word of God and are praying for you, your pastor's, it, it takes a lot to dig in and to be sensitive and to spend time to see how to rightly divide the word of God. It's a weight. It's a responsibility. Teachers are called to a higher judgment. That's in scripture too, you know. So with it comes a responsibility. Um, and ugh, my big thing is with it comes with you got to learn it before you teach it. I mean, really, unless you know it, you got to go through those things. So... They go ahead, and they do this, and they get men of good character, good, sound character here. In verse 5, they go ahead, and, they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. They were, everyone was happy about this. And when, when, God, when you are following after Christ, if all the parties involved are looking to God for the answer, he's going to give you the answer. I tell married couples this all the time. He's not going to tell your husband something different than he tells you. You have to, <laughs> we think we have a direct line to God, and he's a little slower on the other end, but, but there's going to be harmony there. He's going to tell you both the same thing, and if you're not getting the same answer, you need to wait and check your own heart and see, do I, am I being too stubborn here, God? Really, let me bend my will and to see what's going on. And so when we're dealing with groups of people, um, we have to truly all be seeking after God's wisdom in this thing. So they were all pleased. So the unity is restored, okay? And they come up with these seven names. Now, we love that number seven, don't we? It's a number of completion. But maybe the seven mean that one for every day of the week was go over, oversee this. We don't know. 
But it's interesting to note that all the names, including Stephen's name, were all Greek names, which means they all came from the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that were being deprived, these poor widows, okay? So they, for whatever reason, all of these men were probably from that group, um, and they will be overseen to make sure even all the widows were being taken care of and attended to, as was the church's duty. And they were nominated, and they were approved. So, many things could have gone wrong here. Many, many, many things. But we're finding out that what happened when they did it this way in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We're still in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Satan's attempt to divide the church failed. Satan's attempt to distract the apostles from what they were called to do failed. And the benefit of it was the numbers were increasing, and included in that were the priests which is very interesting. Maybe not the high noble ones, but the people who did the daily day, day-to-day um, things in the temple, they knew what it all entailed to, to, to do the temple sacrifices and do all that. They, they were watching how the apostles dealt with this and realized, wow, that is some pretty superior organization. Well, they checked in with God. He knows how to herd people around, doesn't he? Wisdom from above. So as they witnessed this, possibly they were impressed by how the situation was handled. All right. But from the situation, we are introduced to Stephen. Stephen's witness. Now, God is using Stephen here to bridge that gap between Peter and Paul. It's going to explode, not just in Jerusalem, but the gospel is already, because it went to the Hellenistic Jews who had the Greek culture, it's already stepping outside the boundaries of what these religious leaders believe that, oh, it could only be in, you know, the, the temples, the place to worship, and we're the only ones, true Israelites, the nation of God, blah, 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 blah. Because of the Hellenistic widows that came on the scene here, we're a little bit more on the fringe. It's moving out from that elite group. And so, therefore, the tension and the opposition is rising also. So, Pierce Stephen, who's a Hellenistic Jew, and he's on fire for God. On fire for God. And in the background, hanging out, because we're going to find out later, is who? Paul. Paul is watching all, and he is a Hebrew Jew. And he's watching all of this stuff that's going on, and he's watching Stephen. In this brief ministry of Stephen, it wasn't long. I mean, we don't know how long he was doing the, um, with full of grace. In verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great, there it is, wonders and signs, right? When there's a sign that happens filling us with wonder, it points to a truth. He was doing that among the believers, Okay. We don't know what the time lapse is here, but he's out there. He's serving in the church, and he's on fire, full of grace and power. And he's getting 
resistance. In verses in verse 9, we can identify five groups of people that are opposing him. Five groups of people are not liking any of this stuff that's going on and are coming after Stephen. We find out he's talking, he's teaching, um, he's got these signs and these wonders, and this group of people, they rise up and dispute him. And they're, they're, de- they're debating. Lots of things were done in debates. Debates, 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 debates. We, they didn't have quite the, the written uh, resources that we have today. So everything was pretty much a dispute. They were working through things, working through truths and philosophy and thinking, great thinkers and, and you know, this and that. And there was a politeness. There was some rules to, to debate and everything like that. And these people were losing this debate hands down. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was just, every single thing they said, there it was. They they couldn't come up with an excuse. They couldn't come up with a rationale. They couldn't. He was speaking truth to them. And so because they couldn't win fairly, what do they do? They don't like to lose. So they're going to do some undermined stuff. They're going to change their tactics. They're going to use lies and secret strategies to do what? To shape the popular opinion. Ooh, does this hit home today? Shaping the popular opinion? Who shapes popular opinion? The media, right? So we have in verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up their false witnesses, saying, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, Jerusalem, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, see, they don't like this Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they are creating lies and a scenario, and they're spinning it. That was another thing, too. Media likes to spin stuff to get popular opinion. At this point, everyone loved what Stephen was saying. Everyone loved what was going on in the church. Things, the people were just coming in droves and joining the church, or at least realizing that, wow, they are changed people. I'm not sure I want to give up my sin yet to join them. We saw that last week, but there's something different here. There's something powerful happening with this group of Christians. Popular opinion is easily shaped. You know, we're referred to in scripture by as sheep. You can get sheep to do some pretty silly things. They're pretty silly anyways, but, um, or sometimes they're actually kind of skittish too, but, but we can see from Luke with Jesus in Luke 19, the crowd praised Jesus. Hallelujah. Our Savior, praise him, riding in on a donkey. But then by chapter 23 of Luke, what are they shouting? Crucify him. That's a 180-degree turn. 
isn't it? Christians have got to be critical thinkers. Even the things I talk about up here, you guys take it and and look at it and weigh it. And I know you do because some of you come to me and say, Molly, you're a little off. And thank you for pointing that out. Be a critical thinker. Don't just be spoon-fed like, you know, oh, is that what's going on? You know, because someone is well-poised or look good or just, you know, is, has, you know, whatever manners or whatever, doesn't give them always credibility in what they're saying. You have to look past that and look at the content of what they're saying. Jesus was nothing to look at, right? So these religious leaders knew that they could not change or stop any of this following after this Jesus unless they had popular opinion unless they had the masses agreeing with them. So they accused Stephen of the same things they accused Jesus of. Now, that's pretty cool when you fall into that category. What Jesus was saying when he was here on on earth, Stephen was saying the same thing, and they were pointing it out at him too. They were accusing Stephen of saying that Jesus was greater than Moses. Okay? They accused him that, that, that Stephen was saying that, that Jesus is greater than the temple, that he's greater than these religious customs that we have. He was saying that Jesus was God and that Jesus was the fulfillment of law. These things are all lies and blasphemy. This is all not anything good. And so they took Stephen's own words and they twisted that up and they presented it to the public. Satan loves to use half-truths. If there's a little element in truth in something, just a little bit, but just enough to turn it, there's a lot of religions out there today that say, yeah, Jesus is blah, 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 a lot of good things in there, but then they add something in there that just isn't right. It sounds good on the outside. Unless you're a critical thinker, you're not going to see it. So they are, they've arrested him, they've brought him in, and verse 15, and gazing at Stephen... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Face of an angel. What, what, would, what would that mean? I've never seen an angelic face. Sometimes I think children can have angelic faces, and babies and innocence there. Um, was it a cherub kind of childlike face? I, I don't know. He had a full beard, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So it wasn't anything like that. So maybe what they were saying when it says an angelic face, that it was a face that reflected a perfect peace and confidence. Here he was brought before the council for speaking the truth. He knew without a shadow of doubt that he was speaking the truth. And he knew without any kind of doubt whatsoever that Christ was going to take care of him that he was doing exactly what God had called him to do, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit with such confidence, almost like probably a supernatural, okay, an overwhelming sense of it is okay. How many, I don't even know if we experience that very often. Sometimes we do in hospital rooms or something. I hear stories or people, I just had a real peace of mind about it. But I think this goes pretty pretty deep just because of the content of it in history and what's happening here that he had perfect peace and confidence and in a way 
God was answering all of their charges through Stephen's face, wasn't he? God was speaking through Stephen's face by putting on his glory, that peace, that reassurance, that love, joy. I mean, you know faces are like that. And what a contrast on Stephen's face with all the rest of the council of hate and anger and spit. I don't know. I have experienced that, people that have that kind of hate. Um, And it's unnerving. It puts a thing in your stomach when that happens, when people look at you that way. But here's the deal. The church was a new thing. The church was being birthed brand new. And it was going to carry the message, the only truth there is, the only thing that matters in life to a dying world. The church was Christ's witness to the world. And it was about to explode and go and go outside the, the boundaries of Jerusalem. So we get into Stephen's speech here in chapter 7. I'm not going to read all of it. I don't have time to read all of it. But it is a historical account. It's not pieced together like Peter did with um, quoting scriptures. But what it is is a narrative of history, of the, of the, of the Israelites' history, of biblical history through time. How did he know this? God's spirit. But he's just laying it out there, and he's addressing all the accusations against him. And what are those accusations? The first one, that the temple is not, is, is going to be destroyed, and it's not a holy place. They said, okay, and this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That was their first thing. He keeps talking against this holy place. He keeps talking against the temple in Jerusalem. You know, he keeps saying it's going to be destroyed. Jesus said it's all going to fall over. How dare he do that? Okay? So that's the first thing that he's going to address, and we're going to look at it through all the three people he uses, Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And then he speaks against the law. Where he said, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They don't need the law. What does that mean? And so he's going to address that, especially when we get to Moses. And the third one is... He accuses, he keep, they keep saying that he says this Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's resisting the Holy Spirit, the truth that the Holy Spirit's bringing to say that this is Christ. These are the things he's addressing in his speech. He's not just up there, you know. Um, he's got a point here. So in verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? Oh, don't you, like, here's the mic. Here you go. <laughs> God's sovereign, isn't he? There they all are, angry. And he gets it out there. The God of glory, he tells, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I just hate it with those long words. And I practice them, Joyce. I practice them, I know. And then it just never fails. Really, Joyce, I do it on purpose for you. No. <laughs> um, 
So he's saying, right, right out of the chute, he's saying, God appeared to Abraham, your father, great Abra- father Abraham, not here in Jerusalem and not in this temple, but where in a pagan land, you know, the Ur, the Chaldeans, that place was a mess. It was a mess. They didn't honor, they didn't know God. It was, it was like caveman, you know, 2000 BC, cannibal, who knows what was going on back then before really God made his, his scene. You know, it was just a no law, no nothing, you know, it was tribes and, you know, it was just animal behavior. And God appears to Abraham. So he right out of the way, he's saying, before Abraham even came into the promised land, God appeared to him. And if God appeared to him, not just speaking to him, but if God appeared to him, that meant the presence of God was there. They're getting really mad at this, really mad. And he goes on to say, basically, that the temple was not necessary for any revelation to happen. He didn't need the temple to make this happen, okay? The promised land wasn't necessary. He wasn't even set foot in the promised land. He didn't even know where that was. He didn't know where he was going. So none of that was necessary. But they all believed in Abraham, what a great father he was. They know that this is a part of the story, and he's pointing it out. And Abraham, okay, he gets up and goes, but does he really follow through with God at first? No, he stops and hangs out in Haran there until his father-in-law dies or someone dies. He doesn't completely. He's a little disobedient, you know. So did that lose the promise? No. God's promise is on God alone. Because Abraham wasn't obedient all the time, did not take away the promise. Okay? So he's rebuking these religious leaders for making idols out of the temple. Right? And the land, Jerusalem, out of the land too. Okay? So God goes on in verses 6 to 8 to warn Abraham, and he gave him the covenant letting them know it's not going to be easy to follow me. I'm going to use you guys, the nation of Israel, to be a witness to the rest of all the nations of the world. And through you, I am going to have a witness here, and I'm going to bless you. They're going to see what's going to happen. I'm going to use them to discipline you and guide you but protect you. And it's just like God is working through this nation in profound ways as a witness to the entire world. Okay? And then we go on in chapter, verses 9 to 16. We have God's faithfulness through Joseph. Joseph is an interesting character. Where was, was God was with Joseph in Egypt. That's not holy ground, is it? In Egypt, in, with Pharaoh, pagan worship, God was with him. Again, Stephen emphasizes the spiritual presence of God that was with Joseph all the time. In jail, in prison, wherever he was, you know, in in the highest court, he was with him. It wasn't tied to this holy place that they find so like an idol to them. The only land that Abraham ever actually possessed in Canaan was what? his burial plot, right? That was the only thing he inherited. It's the only thing he bought. But his inheritance was received only by faith and is yet to come. And that's what we're going to get to, where dust and things can't rot it away, and it's going to be really cool. 
So anyways, he's letting these people know, these religious leaders, that, yeah, Abraham, and even through Joseph, not, not God was with Joseph, but also Joseph was a symbol of Christ. And we don't always kind of pull that out. But the sons of Israel, his brothers, did they take care of him and listen to what he had to say with these dreams and stuff? Did they like that? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. They rejected him. You know, they wanted to kill him, but God was with them, took care of them. He was just kind of thrown into a pit, okay? So they rejected him over and over and over, and yet Joseph was who? He was their savior in a way because he was able to go to Egypt with the famine. He had them come. They were able to live there, and, and the nation grew into a the people grew into a huge nation. That was all God's pen, but the brothers, the, the sons of Israel, totally rejected Joseph, even though he was his savior, just like they rejected Jesus, who came as their savior. They're getting mad. They're getting really mad because they know the story about Joseph is true. How dare he make a parallel there with what we're doing here today? And so he doesn't stop there. He goes on and starts talking about Moses. And you notice that God allows him to finish what he had to say here. He held back all the evil people. He allowed him to finish. So verses 17 to 50, we have Moses in his early years in Egypt. He was well-pleasing to God. He did mighty words and deeds. And at 40 years old, at a appointed time, Moses offered deliverance to Israel. And what did they do? They rejected him. And he gets chased out into the desert for 40 years. So Stephen is saying to them again, they even rejected Moses. The nation rejected Moses. Just like you rejected Christ. So he's in the wilderness. Where does God show up? He shows up in the wilderness, in a burning bush. Was it in the temple in Jerusalem? No, you guys. You know your history. He's bringing all this to the forefront here, all of this. They rejected Moses over and over and over again. But Moses was what? Their savior, because eventually he brought them out of Egypt, right? But he rejected them over and over and over. There's another parallel. Jesus is your savior. You're rejecting him, you guys. They're getting really mad, really, really mad. And in verse 42, we have a, but God. But God turned away and gave them over to worship their host of heaven. You reject God enough times, you reject the truth enough times, God will give you over. We know that in Romans 1, 24 and 32. Continued rejection of God. He finally just says, okay. But I, the next part here in 48 to 50. Well, in 44, let's get down there and say that. Because in the temple with David and Solomon there was the tabernacle in the desert that was you know they God Christ God was with them and then there was a temple that Solomon built and stuff like that and in 48 it says yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet said 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Do not my hand make all of these things? It's a new thing happening. Yes, God would be in a tent. Yes, he would be in the temple. They did all these things, but this is the church age. Christ came. He ascended. He died and he's ascended. And now he indwells us. Christ lives with his people. And the day will come when we live in eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth with none of the shenanigans that's going on down here. So this was a revelation. This was something that they weren't really prepared to understand. And unless they were, it had the insight of the Holy Spirit, they weren't going to get it. And the, the, just, the opposition grew and grew and grew on these people. They weren't willing to accept for whatever reason. They would have to give up their, a lot of things. So Stephen has addressed all of their points through their own history. It showed it back to them. What happens? Verse 51, last point here. Ah, you stiff-necked people. That's that, <clears throat> I am not going to bend for anything. No way. And we sometimes have it where a, a humbled sea bowing down to not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. But that, ah, stiff-necked, I'm not giving in to anything. He calls them that. They were called stiff-necked for, Christ called them stick. They've been called stiff-necked throughout the whole scriptures, okay? Stiff-necked. We get stiff-necked, okay? He's pointing out to them, he's accusing them to be just like their forefathers, they always resisted the Spirit. They always, they always killed God's prophets, and they did not keep the law of Moses even. Therefore, you stiff-necked people, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Deuteronomy ten sixteen. They knew that verse. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Putting up a mirror there. Sometimes there's quotes out there that are just, you can't put it in any better words. Charles Spurgeon. Stephen takes the sharp, knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their soul he could not have delivered that searching address with greater fearlessness had he been assured that they would thank him for the for the operation in fact that his death was certain had no other effect on him than to make him yet more zealous. He probably knew he was going to die spitting all that stuff out. Did that hinder him? No. It just gave him more boldness to say it because he was speaking the truth. So their reaction in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, I've never been that mad. I've been mad. I've clenched my fists before. 
but the gnashing of teach and the enraged, it means their sin was exposed to them. And they were infuriated about that. And rather than repent, they got angrier and angrier. They couldn't refute anything they said. We already know that when they were debating with him, their wisdom wasn't good enough. And now he does this to them. And they were so enraged, they did not want to admit to it. They could have repented, but they didn't. They went the other way and gnashed their teeth. In the New Testament, Jesus himself describes hell. Seven times he describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A resistance that the obstinate sinner has to repent. That grinding of the teeth. Wow, Psalms 37, 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. What a contrast again. I'd rather laugh with my mouth than gnash my teeth, wouldn't you? (laughs) So they're enraged. Enraged. 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he points that out. Behold, I see the heavens are open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, that didn't help matters any, did it? And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And have, little kids will do this. <laughs> when I don't want to listen. <laughs> These are grown men acting like this covering their ears and screaming to drown out what he was saying. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. And they, they rushed at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him because they couldn't stone him in the city. They weren't a law-abiding enough that they weren't going to do it in the city. They brought him out and stoned him. So, full of the Spirit is a great contrast to what was going on with them. Now, he saw Jesus standing. There's couple different things people have talked about. What was it like Jesus is standing? Because heaven refers that he went and, you know, he finished his work on the cross and he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So what exactly does that mean? Is he sitting or he's standing? Did he stand up to welcome Stephen in? Maybe. Maybe he did. Um, We don't really know. But here's another thought that I found interesting. Stephen's on trial, right? He's taken before the council. And they're accusing him of these three things. Making fun of the temple, making fun of the law, blah, 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 blah. And Stephen presents his case. And then heaven opens up. One of the jobs that Jesus has right now for us in heaven is interceding for us. So you got a courtroom in heaven, you got the throne of God up there, and here's the trial lawyer. Let me present Stephen's case to you. And he's standing there. It's my turn. And let me say this. And he's up there. And he's saying, he's mine. I died for him and he's mine. That's just kind of a different way to kind of look at that, isn't it? That he's pleading Stephen's case because it says in Matthew 10, 32, that I didn't mark it. Let me get it for you guys. That if we deny Christ 
in front of man, he'll deny us in front of the Father. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So it could be a picture of that too. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was a cool picture, and it welcomed Stephen up into heaven, and it really got those guys mad. In verse 57, they were so angry and enraged at him. Their hate intensified. It was just too much for them. They couldn't handle it anymore, so they ran at him like a mad rush of herd, of this, like the swine that, that the demons got into and drove them into the sea in Mark 5.12. They were an out-of-control mob. And who's watching? Who's watching? Paul's watching all of this stuff. Now, I know there's been some commentary that says he watched and giving approval of all of it, but was he? Maybe he was, but I'm sure things were ticking in his. He just saw what happened with Stephen. He just heard all the truth that he had known about. Paul has gone to rabbinical school. He knows all this stuff, what he was saying. All of this stuff that was coming out, the whole incident, and there was Paul watching everything happen. He didn't join in the chaos. He didn't join in the anger towards Stephen, did he? He stood on the side where they threw the coats down. Contrast, death and life, hate and love. Stephen's final words of complete trust in God. He says, 59, And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where have we heard that before? On the cross? On the cross? And, and, and Jesus said, you know, to his father, so the fact that Stephen is saying about Lord Jesus, this Jesus, He's pretty much acknowledging the deity of Christ right there. Paul witnesses that too. Paul hears him when he says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And with that, he fell asleep. Saul heard all of that stuff, all of that stuff. And it's a tender way to say that he he died by tenderly saying he has gone into a sleep, into the presence of God. This church was a new thing, and people had to start thinking outside the box. And Paul is there wondering and thinking about what's happening here with all that stuff. And we're going to get into verse 8. It's going to be the explosion because they're going to start going out amongst, and we've got Paul taking it to the Gentiles, and Peter still with the Jews. What a great time in history to, to, have, to be living from this little guy, Stephen, a brief time in his life um, that this whole explosion bounced off of. You know, we live in unprecedented times. I mean, Janie and I were talking today. This is just weird. Is this the new normal? Is, you know, what's going on here? Even the how the Bible study, who's coming, who's not coming, you know, it's like, what are we, what's happening? And it's okay, we're, going, we're, we're navigating through this and everything. People are still afraid to come out of their houses and... It's just different. It's just very different. Have you been to Walmart? Boy, is that depressing. There's nothing on the shelves anymore. Are we going to have a rush for toilet paper? I don't know. 
I know how to squat in the woods, right? <laughs> Do we need that? I don't mean, I don't know. But, but we know this, that he will take care of us. And we know this, that we are his witness when all the rest of the world's in chaos, not knowing what to do, we have the peace of God and the assurance that no matter what happens to us, we're going to see him face to face. And that countenance that we can have as we navigate through these difficult times is going to be a maker or a breaker for a lot of people.